Welcome to the Modern Marrow Men podcast with Tom Hicks and John DeVito. Modern Marrow Men is a podcast on the Man of God Network brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. We're hosting a weekly conversation on the law and the gospel so that church leaders and Christian lay people will rightly divide the word of truth. Tom, it's good to be back with you. It's great to be back, brother. And uh, today we have another guest. Uh, we're enjoying speaking with others. And uh, so today we have, uh, well, I'll, I'll let you introduce him. Sure. We have the honor of having with us uh, today Dr. Richard Barcelos, who's the pastor of Grace Reformed Baptist Church in Palmdale, California. And he's the author of a number of different books, uh, Getting the Garden Right, uh, Trinity and Creation, In Defense of the Decalogue, uh, The Family Tree of Reformed Biblical Theology, and The Lord's Supper as a Means of Grace. Uh, Rich, it's great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me, guys. That's great, Rich. It's good to have you on here, man. Uh, well, you know, here we are to talk about the covenant of works. Uh, Tom and I have, have spent time talking about the importance of covenant theology as it uh, relates to this uh, conversation we're having on the law and the gospel. And uh, of course, you've written uh, on this, not only uh, with uh, Getting the Garden Right, which we both, Tom and I both love and recommend uh, often, but also a, a shorter little work uh, on the covenant of works. And so we thought it'd be good to have you on here to talk a little more about uh, the Covenant of Works, its importance, and what it means uh, for our uh, ministry and for the church today. So uh, just to begin, uh, an easy question, or, or maybe a question that, that'll take a little, little bit to answer well, but how would you define the Covenant of Works, and where do you see it taught in Scripture? Um, very carefully and all over the place. <laughs> yeah. To be specific, uh, I would define uh, the covenant of works as a divinely sanctioned commitment, or you could call it a relationship that God imposed upon Adam. And I think it's important to identify Adam as a sinless representative of mankind, the older the older writers called him a public person. So if you ever read that, you know what it means. It means a, a representative, a federal or covenant head. Adam was also an image-bearing son of God. And this uh, covenant was conditioned upon his obedience. It had a penalty for disobedience. And all of this was for uh, what Nehemiah Cox the, calls the bettering of man's state. So... That's kind of a technical definition. So is it okay if I kind of break it down into five little points? Sure thing, brother. Come on. Okay. So the covenant works is a sovereign divine imposition upon Adam. It comes from God. It's not a mere um, agreement between two equal parties. Obviously, the creator and the creature are not equal. Uh, it involves representation by Adam, who is a federal or covenant head, who's also a sinless, image-bearing son of God. That's very important as well. It has a conditional element, which is obedience. There's a penalty for disobedience, which is death. And there is a promise of reward, or you know, technically speaking, we can say eschatological potential or betterment. That's the word I'm borrowing from Cox. So we could say that the covenant of works was made with a representative, sinless, image-bearing son of God. I would also add that it could only be fulfilled 
by a representative, sinless image-bearing son of God, since that who is who it was made with, and since disobedience violates its terms, which disobedience happened with Adam and all those he represented. So its curse affects Adam and his uh, progeny, but its promised reward is now impossible to attain since man is now in a fallen sinful condition. So I would even say this, in order to fulfill its condition and receive its promised reward, another like Adam is necessary. That is Christ, the last Adam. Amen. So that's kind of a long definition, but scriptural support is, uh, you know, makes me want to ask, how long do we have? <laughs> because that's a huge question. Um, but before I answer it, I, I think it's good to preface my answer with this. Um, accounting for the covenant of works requires work. And a work that is rewarding, but you don't get eternal life by virtue of working to account for the covenant of works. It involves hermeneutics and exegesis and uh, theological synthesis. We are formulating a doctrine, which means we are bringing together various strands of scriptural assertions and then putting it in uh, a, a more simple, hopefully um, more uh, smaller um, terms instead of just listing a bunch of texts. So it's not as simple as going to one text and saying, you know, aha, there it is. Paul says covenant of works in the garden. No, we have to analyze and synthesize passages uh, which deal with creation. I would say especially the creation and vocation of Adam, both his identity, who he is, and his calling, what he was to do. But we also need to um, analyze and synthesize passages about the new creation in Christ, uh, which is very important and I think the considerations I'm going to share in a moment here um, reflect a redemptive historical you know, method uh, on the main, which seeks to interpret the events in the garden. We've got to get the garden right, right? Mm -hmm. But my method seeks to in interpret the events in the garden primarily through subsequent divine commentary in the Bible on those very events. In other words, I'm looking for God's word on God's word. God's word, subsequent divine commentary on God's word, Genesis 1, and primarily Genesis 2. And this method uh, quickly becomes centered on Christ. And there's good reason for that. Uh, in the words of John uh, Fesco, people don't realize that when you're when you enter the turf of Genesis 1 through 3, uh, you have entered, he calls, the shadow lands, you know, the land of the types of Christ and his work. Mm -hmm. I think that's very important to understand. So I have in my writings in one or two places, I think, seven arguments for the covenant of works. And so since the number of seven is the number of perfection, you know, there might be something to it. I don't know. That was a joke, by the way. <laughs> right. Um, 
so I, you know, before you can even, to me, before I even look at the Bible to try to ask that question, I, I've got to have a, a, a solid hermeneutic, an exegetical method, theological synthesis, uh, and then my formulation comes from that. So if, if you've read anything I've written on this, you know that the first thing I do is I deal with hermeneutics and theological method because that's often overlooked. You know, people just say, well, wh where does it use the word covenant there? Or where's the term works there? Well, that method doesn't work because, you know, we could push back on it and say, well, the word Trinity, the word Christology, uh, these terms are not used in the Bible, but the concepts embedded in the terms are clearly there though in other words the same thing i think goes for the covenant of works uh for example i'm not, not going to share all of these but one of the things i think we need to realize is that um you know when god when moses wrote genesis 1 and 2 whenever he wrote it it's not as if moses was there you know when things were happening wow day one slow down you know um Moses is depicting for us God's previous acts of creation. And it's not a, you know, it, it is a narrative, but it's obviously not an exhaustive narrative. Uh, for example, stuff goes on in Genesis 4 where um, sacrifices are offered after a period of days, but we're never told that they were commanded to do so. So there, there's more going on there behind the scenes or uh, when the events were occurring than, than Moses uh, lets us in on. Uh, and we shouldn't fault him for it. But one thing that Moses does in Genesis 1 is he identifies God as Elohim, and then there's a shift at 2-4, and I, and most commentators say this, there's a shift now uh, to focus on man created in God's image at 2-4. Well, after that, uh, God is identified as Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh Elohim. Many, many times. I mean, there's like 10 or more uses of just Elohim, and then suddenly he shifts. Could be, and I think it is. Um, he does this to indicate to readers that a covenant is being revealed to us at this point in, in the narrative. And I think this view is supported by how the rest of Scripture views the Garden of Eden in terms of an Edenic covenant being revealed way back then. Uh, and what Scripture does for us is it fills in some of the gaps of Moses' selective narrative. It does this in several texts. For instance, uh, Isaiah 24, 5 and 6 says, The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgressed. Law. This is the earth now. That is universal. They transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours not just Israel, but the earth. And those who live in it are held guilty. Universal guilt. Uh, and universal curse based on uh, the breach of a covenant. Therefore, Isaiah goes on, the inhabitants of the earth are burned and few men are left. So, you know, Isaiah is being Pauline in one sense, or we could say better, Paul is very Isianic. 
looking yeah. back from their historical circumstance to a violated covenant, the violation of which has affected everyone. Did somebody want to say something? <laughs> no, no that's great for me, brother. Um, well, the same, this, the same thing happens in Hosea 6, 7. And I know both these texts are, are debated and all that stuff. But I think the best interpretation of Hosea 6, 7 and the Isaiah passage, go back to the garden. But like Adam, they, Israel, have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. Now, like Adam, um, that translation, but like Adam, Israel has transgressed the covenant. It has a long pedigree uh, going back at least to Jerome. And uh, Warfield um, has a great piece called Hosea 6, 7, Adam or Man, where he shows a long pedigree. Richard Muller even says this, the text, Hosea 6-7, indicated as virtually all of the patristic and medieval commentators concluded a prelapsarian covenant made by God with Adam and broken in the fall. So there you have two instances where prophets in a given historical context uh, dip back into the creation account and reveal to us that even though the word covenant is not there, the concept is implicit in it and they're making it now explicit. Um, the same thing happens, by the way, with the or similar thing happens with the Davidic covenant. The first time it's mentioned, uh, the word covenant isn't there. But when 2 Samuel 23 looks back on 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 89 looks back on 2 Samuel 7 and 2 Samuel 7 is the first time the Davidic covenant, the promise of the Davidic covenant is recorded for us in scripture and the word covenant isn't used. When subsequent uh, reflection occurs, 2 Samuel 23, Psalm 89, they use the word covenant. And I, I think the same thing's going on in Hosea and Isaiah. So you see how important hermeneutics is here, right? Absolutely. Yes, sir. Absolutely. You know, in, in uh, thinking through some sorry, of the things you even mentioned. I have. Oh, go I'm ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say I have more arguments, but I think it's time to come up for air. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I appreciate so ahead, it. John. Uh, well, I, I was, you know, reflecting on what you were saying about of the change from uh, God as Elohim to God as uh, Yahweh in Genesis 1 and 2 and the significance there. But, um, you know, one, one of the insightful things that, that, that I've gained through reading some of your works and, and discussing these things with you is that distinction we need to make in mankind's relationship with God uh, uh, and and was wondering if if you wouldn't mind expanding and building on on that whole idea, our relationship uh, with God, essentially in Genesis one, compared to our relationship with God in Genesis two, and and uh, the the importance of that in in this, this whole discussion of the covenant of works. Um, yes, that's a really good question. So I'm, I'm assuming you're 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 asking about the distinction between man as creature and obligated to his creator 
and man as creature in covenant with God and obligated on that level as well. Exactly. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah. 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 Well, it's a, it's a debatable, you know, issue among reformed theologians, and it has been for a long time. I am most comfortable with the view that um, we need to make a distinction between Adam as creature from the hand of his maker and Adam as creature from the hand of his maker in covenant with God. Even the, the lar larger, and I think the shorter catechism, and the Baptist catechism, I believe, they all put the covenant works under the rubric of divine providence after um, Adam was created, uh, which makes it a revelation to Adam subsequent to his creation. And that is through the positive laws presented to us in Genesis chapter 2. Man as creature owes God obedience. But there's nothing implicit in man as creature who owes God obedience that God would reward his obedience with anything but, you know, well done, my good and faithful servant. But this, this gaining of life, um, this reward of life, to use the language of the confession, is not coextensive with creation. I think the confession uh, at least implies that. And I know the catechism very clearly support that. And uh, Sam Renahan's book deals with this, I, I think, a little. I, I deal with it maybe more than Sam. I think Sam said I'm not going to deal with it because Rich already dealt with it. But I can tell you this. Don't tell anyone this, okay? I dealt with it the way I dealt with it because Sam helped me think through the issue uh, more precisely. So that the covenant works becomes a an act of revelation by God to Adam subsequent to his creation. And the uh, one, one of the huge differences is this promise of reward or the reward of life. And I take that to be a quality of life was proffered to Adam that is better than the quality of life he had via creation. That's why the title of uh, one of my books is Better Than the Beginning. Um, eschatological life is proffered, offered to Adam via this covenant grounded upon or um, depended upon his obedience to the law of God. And of course, this also uh, enters into our discussion about the law because what mankind owes God as creature uh, is the natural law. Uh, it, it's, it's his moral law. Um, and yet, when you come to man as creature in covenant, you have the addition of the positive law that is then required for the reward uh, of, of obedience. And, and so that distinction that we've been maintaining in our discussions uh, is really the, the the fruit of this understanding, isn't it, of uh, the difference between or distinguishing between natural law and positive law uh, in in this uh, mankind's relationship with God as image bearer uh, and as uh, covenant um, covenant head in that way. Yeah, I, I think what you're getting at is that the covenant of works then becomes the vehicle through which Adam could bring himself and all those he represented 
to a state of existence um, better than his created state by virtue of a divine promise um, you know, within the body of the covenant itself. Yeah. Or something like that. <laughs> well, Tom, you know, Tom the, do you have any... Go ahead, Rich. I was going to say there are several texts, several really well-known texts that I we have to wrestle with deeply. I think as we think about this, uh, Romans three twenty-three is one of those. Uh, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, one way I I do it in sermons with my people is, who was the first sinner, Adam? What did he fall short of? Glory. What is glory? Well, it's something Adam wasn't created with. Now. Um, if you go from Paul's Adam Christ uh, typology and anti-typology, glory was entered into by our Lord at the third day resurrection. He suffered and then he entered into glory. There's a, several texts in the New Testament that have that suffering glory motif. And it's rooted not in what the New Testament says in and of itself, but I think in every single case, sufferings and glory motif shows up in the New Testament twice in Luke, at least once in Acts, First um, uh, Peter one. There's probably other ones. It's rooted in the Old Testament that the Messiah would suffer and then enter into His glory. So, what is glory? For the Messiah, according to his human nature, it's a condition of existence um, somehow qualitatively better than the condition or existence in which uh, he lived during a state of humiliation. It's better than the beginning for him as well. And and then you read, you know, Second Thessalonians 2, uh, 13, 14, something like that. There's a text there that says that we're going to share 2 Thessalonians 2.14. The glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to gain, excuse me. We're going to gain something we don't presently have. Gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father appoints the Son to be the agent through whom God brings many sons to glory. Uh, here's what John Owen says, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ or the obtaining a portion in that glory which Christ purchased and procured for them. So that means that Christ purchased glory for all he came to save. I would say according to his human nature, he did so as the last Adam. He suffered satisfy the justice of God and his obedience unto death resulted in his exaltation, which I think is an entrance into glory. And all those who are his will enter into that same glory as well. So just to end this really quickly, we could say that the last Adam takes his seed where the first Adam failed to take his. Uh, I think it was Dr. Waldron who endorsed the better than the beginning. He says, Barcellus argues that Adam derailed the glory train and Christ puts us back on the tracks and gets us there. Amen. Amen. Tom, uh, would you any uh, reflection on, on this time before we go today, brother? 
No, I think that's really excellent. Um, Brother Rich, thank you so much for uh, pointing us to the texts that um, that are relevant to this issue. I know that you could keep going, but that gives us a good place to begin. So very grateful for it. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for listening to the Modern Marrow Man podcast on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. If you'd like to know more about CBTS, please visit online at cbtseminary.org. That's cbtseminary.org. Well, we, we all know how, we all know how short Rich is, so he camera. <laughs> <laughs> He may be the only reformed theologian that's shorter than I am. <laughs> Bryce is going to have way too much fun with the blooper reel on this. <laughs> what are you saying? Than, I know shorter than men than me that were theologians. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. John John Murray was five six. Really. I, I always thought I'm as about six three or something. <laughs> no, I'm. It's. I think it's in the banner. One of those. Uh, wherever the Ian Murray biography is, it's in the banner edition someplace. I think it said there he was five foot six. Wow. Spurgeon was pretty short. Yeah. <laughs>